European Hearts Journal Issue at a Glance, Volume 38, Issue 10, Focus Issue on Heart Failure, by Editor-in-Chief Professor Thomas Lucia. Frontiers in Heart Failure, Sodium, Longitudinal Strain, Contractility Sensor, Fatal Arrhythmias, and Stroke. This focus issue on heart failure begins with the current opinion contribution The Year in Cardiology 2016 Heart Failure, authored by Aldo P. Maggioni and colleagues from the ANMCO Research Centre in Florence, Italy. The current year has been mainly characterised by the publication, both in Europe and in the US, of guidelines for the diagnosis and treatment of heart failure with the praiseworthy effort to provide consistent recommendations. Therefore, the large majority of new evidence published at the end of 2015 and in the first quarter of 2016 are included in these publications. However, as always happens, the scientific community has been provided more recently with additional relevant information from new studies very relevant to the management of patients with heart failure. Sodium intake is an important yet controversial issue in hypertension and heart failure. While particularly US professional societies recommend a strict sodium diet in many of these patients, others are less strict and consider a U-shape relationship between sodium and cardiovascular events. Indeed, even harm of a very low sodium diet has been reported, particularly in heart failure. In a WHF position statement on sodium intake, Jagat Narula and colleagues from the Mount Sinai St. Luke's Mount Sinai West in New York, USA, reiterate that defining an optimal range of sodium intake in populations has been challenging and controversial. Clinical trials evaluating the effect of sodium reduction on blood pressure have shown blood pressure-lowering effects down to sodium intake of less than 1.5 grams per day. Findings from these blood pressure trials form the basis for current guideline recommendations to reduce sodium intake to less than 2.3 grams per day. However, these clinical trials employed interventions that are not feasible for population-wide implementation, i.e. feeding studies or intensive behavioral interventions, particularly in low- and middle-income countries. Prospective cohort studies have identified the optimal range of sodium intake to reside in the moderate range, 3 to 5 grams per day, where the risk of cardiovascular disease and death is lowest. Therefore, there is consistent evidence from clinical trials and observational studies to support reducing sodium intake to less than 5 grams per day in populations, but inconsistent evidence for further reductions below a moderate intake range of 3 to 5 grams per day. Unfortunately, there are no large randomized controlled trials comparing low sodium intake, equaling less than 3 grams per day, to moderate sodium intake, i.e. 3 to 5 grams per day, in general populations to determine the net clinical effects of low sodium intake. Until such trials are completed, it is likely that controversy about optimal sodium intake range will continue. This working group calls for the completion of large definitive clinical trials to clarify the range of sodium intake for optimal cardiovascular health within the moderate to low intake range. The author supports interventions to reduce sodium intake in populations with a high sodium intake, i.e. more than 5 grams per day, which should be embedded in an overall healthy dietary pattern.
pump function of the left ventricle is usually assessed by ejection fraction. In the presence of valvular heart disease, particularly mitral regurgitation, this parameter may overestimate contractile status of the left heart. Left ventricular global longitudinal strain reflects left ventricular systolic function more precisely and correlates inversely with the extent of left ventricular myocardial scar and fibrosis. In an ESC fast-track clinical trial update, prognostic implications of left ventricular global longitudinal strain in heart failure patients with narrow QRS complex treated with cardiac resynchronization therapy, a sub-analysis of the randomized ECHO-CRT trial. Jeroen J. Bax and colleagues from the Leiden University Medical Center in the Netherlands investigated the prognostic value of left ventricular global longitudinal strain in patients with narrow QRS complex. Left ventricular global longitudinal strain was measured on the apical 2, 4, and 3 chamber views using speckle tracking analysis. Measurement of baseline left ventricular global longitudinal strain was feasible in 755 patients. The median value of left ventricular global longitudinal strain in the overall population was 7.9%. After 19 months, 95 patients without cardiac resynchronization therapy, i.e. CRT off group, and 111 in the CRT on group, reached the combined primary endpoint of all-cause mortality and heart failure hospitalization. Each 1% absolute unit decrease in left ventricular global longitudinal strain was independently associated with an 11% increase in the risk to reach the primary endpoint after adjusting for ischemic cardiomyopathy and randomization treatment, among other clinically relevant variables. When categorizing patients according to quartiles of left ventricular global longitudinal strain, the primary endpoint occurred more frequently in patients in the lowest quartile, i.e. below 6.2%, specifically in 46% treated with CRT on and in 29% with CRT off, whereas no differences were observed in patients with left ventricular global longitudinal strain greater or equal to 6.2% treated with CRT off or CRT on. The authors conclude that low left ventricular global longitudinal strain is associated with poor outcome in heart failure patients with QRS width below 130 milliseconds, independent of randomization to cardiac resynchronization therapy or not. In the group of patients with the lowest left ventricular global longitudinal strain quartile, cardiac resynchronization therapy may have a detrimental effect on clinical outcomes. The manuscript is accompanied by an editorial authored by Ola Alexander Breithart from the Agaplesion Diakoni Kliniken Kassel in Kassel, Germany. Although cardiac resynchronization therapy is effective in patients with systolic heart failure and a wide QRS interval, a substantial proportion of patients remain non-responsive. The SON-R contractility sensor embedded in the right atrial lead, enables individualized automatic optimization of the atrioventricular and interventricular timings. In a clinical research manuscript entitled Contractility Sensor-Guided Optimization of Cardiac Resynchronization Therapy Results from the RESPOND-CRT Trial, 
Josep Brugada and the Respond Cardiac Resynchronization Therapy investigators noted that the Respond CRT study investigated the safety and efficacy of the contractility sensor system in heart failure patients undergoing cardiac resynchronization therapy. Respond CRT was a prospective, randomized, double-blind, multi-center, non-inferiority trial. Patients were randomized two to one to receive weekly automatic cardiac resynchronization therapy optimization with SON-R versus an echo-guided optimization of atrioventricular and interventricular timings. The primary efficacy endpoint was the rate of clinical responders, i.e. patients alive without adjudicated heart failure-related events and with improvement in New York Heart Association class or quality of life at 12 months. The study randomized 998 patients. The rate of responders was 75% in the SON-R group and 70% within the ECHO-guided group. After a follow-up of 548 days, SON-R was associated with a 35% risk reduction in heart failure hospitalization with a hazard ratio of 0.65. The authors conclude that automatic atrioventricular and interventricular optimization using the contractility sensor was safe and as effective as echo-guided atrioventricular and interventricular optimization in increasing response to cardiac resynchronization therapy. The manuscript is accompanied by an editorial authored by Giuseppe Boriani from the University of Modena and Reggio Emilia in Modena, Italy. Heart failure has been subdivided into those with reduced pump function heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, or HFREF, and those with preserved pump function, heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, or HFPEF. Recently, the new ESC guidelines have introduced a third group, i.e. those with mid-range ejection fraction, or HFMREF. All forms of heart failure are associated with an array of complications, from decompensation leading to repeated hospitalizations, to arrhythmias, mitral regurgitation, and fatal pump failure. In those developing atrial fibrillation, stroke is an additional major cardiovascular event. On the other hand, the incidence and predictors of stroke in patients with heart failure and preserved ejection fraction, but without atrial fibrillation, are unknown. This issue has been addressed by John J.J.V. McMurray and colleagues from the Western Infirmary in Glasgow, UK, in their research article, Risk of Stroke in Chronic Heart Failure Patients with Preserved Ejection Fraction but Without Atrial Fibrillation, Analysis of the CHARM Preserved and I-Preserved Trials. To that end, they pooled data from the CHARM Preserved and I-Preserved Trials. Using Cox regression, they derived a model for stroke in such patients and compared its performance with a published model in heart failure patients with reduced ejection fraction. The two stroke models were compared, and Kaplan-Meier curves for stroke estimated. The risk model was validated in a third heart failure and preserved ejection fraction trial. Of the 6,701 patients, 4,676 did not have atrial fibrillation. Stroke occurred in 6.1% of those with atrial fibrillation, and in 3.7% in those without it. 
there was no difference in performance of the stroke model derived in the heart failure and preserved ejection fraction cohort and the published heart failure with reduced ejection fraction model as the predictive variables overlapped. The model performed well in the validation cohort. The rate of stroke in patients in the upper third of risk approximated to that in patients with atrial fibrillation. McMurray and colleagues conclude that a small number of clinical variables, specifically age, BMI, NYHA class, history of stroke, and insulin-treated diabetes, identify a subset of patients with heart failure and preserved ejection fraction, but without atrial fibrillation, at elevated risk of stroke. In a final research article entitled Incidents and Predictors of Sudden Death, Major Conduction Defects and Sustained Ventricular Tachyarrhythmias in 1,388 Patients with Myotonic Dystrophy Type 1, Karim Wabi and colleagues from the Cochin Hospital in Paris, France, describe the incidents and predictors of sudden death, major conduction defects and sustained ventricular tachyarrhythmias in myotonic dystrophy type 1. They retrospectively enrolled 1,388 adults with myotonic dystrophy type 1 referred to six French medical centres, confirmed their vital status, classified all deaths, and determined the incidence of major conduction defects requiring permanent pacing and sustained ventricular tachyarrhythmias. Over a median 10-year follow-up, 18% of the patients died, 3.6% suddenly. Analysis of the cardiac rhythm at the time of the 39 sudden deaths revealed sustained ventricular tachyarrhythmias in 9, asystole in 5, complete atrioventricular block in 1, and electromechanical dissociation in 2 patients. Non-cardiac causes were identified in the five patients with sudden death who underwent autopsies. Major conduction defects developed in 19% and sustained ventricular tachyarrhythmias in 2% of patients. By Cox regression analysis, age, family history of sudden death, and left bundle branch block were independent predictors of sudden death while age, male sex, ECG conduction abnormalities, syncope, and atrial fibrillation were independent predictors of major conduction defects. Non-sustained ventricular tachyarrhythmias was the only predictor of sustained ventricular tachyarrhythmias. The authors conclude that sudden death is a frequent mode of death in myotonic dystrophy type 1, with multiple mechanisms involved. Major conduction defects were by far more frequent than sustained ventricular tachyarrhythmias, whose only independent predictor was a personal history of non-sustained ventricular tachyarrhythmias. The editors hope that this issue of the European Hearts Journal will find the interest of its readers.